It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. This is Eric Ludi. When we construct our new studio, we have been dishing out some throwback series from the earlier days of Daily Thunder. This particular series, entitled The Ingredients of Intimacy, was originally aired back in October of 2019 when Ellerslie hosted a powerful five-week advanced discipleship training here on our campus. The theme of that training was pursuing devotional excellence with Christ. We kicked off that five weeks with this five-part series. I hope you will be blessed by this meditation. So this is the fifth installment in a series uh, that I've been calling Ingredients for Intimacy, which uh, for those of you that are students here, you know the significance of what we're going through because then for the rest of the morning, we're digging deeper into aspects of how we cultivate intimacy with Christ because we're going through the advanced training right now, which focuses very specifically on devotional excellence. And I tell you what, this week has been very invigorating for me personally. And so, um, somewhat jealous in a positive sense of the fact that you guys get to spend all day, every day just focused on this stuff. I have to go and do all sorts of stuff after I teach this, thinking, oh, I wish I could spend a few hours <laughs> just digging into that at a greater level. But uh, it's, that's why it's such a precious season to have, uh, to have a season where you can just focus. Um, from the outside looking in, uh, it's interesting because the names that I've had for this week, you know, I think we had, what was it, time on Monday, study, we had remember on Wednesday, and yesterday was wow, and then today is identification, and uh, they're just one word titles, but they all are saying something very specific, and they're akin or linked with what we could call the uh, the disciplines of the Christian faith. Uh, and so the interesting one that we're linking with today is one that you don't readily see when you, uh, when you see the word identification, but it's prayer. Prayer is one of the disciplines of the faith. Uh, and so to say the word identification instead is sort of odd. So we have a group coming in. Hey, guys, come on in. Uh, there's some faces I know and love. Hey, guys. Uh, we're live uh, streaming. Did you guys want to say anything uh, into the stream? <laughs> so uh, the title for today is Identification, and that's going to make sense as we progress, and it's profound what it does have to do with prayer. Because many of us, when we see uh, the word identification, we have completely different associations with it. So, and especially the ideas of intimacy. What does that have to do with intimacy? So uh, let's just walk through this. Paul is going to use a term in Philippians 3.10, which is going to have to do with identification. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection, here it is, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. The fellowship of his sufferings. What an interesting thing to desire in the first place. If you've ever read that, it's sort of like you want to read everything that's in the list and then you want to skip over that little one. It's like, yeah, I desire that too, Lord. Yes, well, not that little piece. Uh, the fellowship of his sufferings, not so much. And yet, there is something very precious. If any of you have suffered for the name of Jesus, and I don't mean been thrown in prison and tortured because I don't know how many of you have gone through that yet, but you can suffer in varying degrees for the name of Jesus. 
just by standing, just by speaking truth and finding out what happens as a result. There's also ramifications because when you stand for Jesus, you get spiritual attention and the demons <laughs> have a tendency to single you out and you get a little harassment. Well, you could call that suffering for the name of Jesus. Here's what's interesting. When you go through that at any level, there's two ways you can go through it. You can go through it with the self-pity mode on, you know, flip on the switch for self-pity mode, and it just destroys the whole thing. I mean, you're not getting any benefit out of it. But if you turn on the, for the glory of King Jesus mode, and the rejoicing, the thanksgiving, and all things, it's amazing, but what it brings you into is a deeper understanding of his sufferings. And you recognize, it's like, wow, and you bore this for me. And so it actually enriches, get this, your connectedness, your intimacy with the Lord. When you suffer, you actually grow closer to God. Isn't that, that what? How, how does that work? That's how the kingdom of heaven works. That's one of the great benefits. And in fact, it's called the consolation of the Holy Spirit. When you suffer for the name of Jesus, it's amazing, but you receive something back which is richer, is more profound than if you had never suffered in the first place. And so, as a result, what Paul is saying here, he knows what he's talking about. This guy went through a lot. And so, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Well, hey guys, it's great to see you. Uh, we just, I, it seems like we have a lot of uh, the Canadian persuasion uh, heading in here. I think we're being overcome, all of you Americans. We need to, we need to hang together. Uh, <coughs> Welcome, guys. It's great having you here. And for those of you that are hearing this via podcast that are trying to figure out why we have so many Canadians coming in, uh, we have an alumni conference that has started today, so we have just loads of alumni uh, that are just like pouring into Daily Thunder this morning. I, I should correct them and say, you know, it does start at 8.15. <laughs> but maybe that's a Canadian thing. You know, just sort of, if, if you say 8.15, that actually means 8.25. It's great having you guys here. The fellowship of his sufferings. You see, in, we're talking about intimacy here, and that's been our theme all week long. Uh, when you share in something, when someone near you is going through difficulty, uh, there's, there's a propensity to want to distance yourself. And this happens a lot. In Christianity, when someone is going through financial difficulty, it's like you want to sort of steer away lest their financial difficulty gets on you. If they're going through accusation, you sort of want to steer away lest their accusation sort of gets on you. In marriage, what's amazing about marriage is you identify one with the other. It's like you share each other's name. And so if one person is going through a difficulty, you identify with it, whether you want to or not. But when it's a willful identification where you deliberately choose to say, yes, we're together, it's incredible how it bonds you. It's a bonding agent. Identification is a, an incredible catalyst to intimacy. So uh, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to invite you in to the fellowship of the ages. This is just first generation Christianity. Stephen was stoned, Philip was crucified, Matthew was slain with the sword, James the brother of Jesus was stoned and clubbed, Matthias was stoned and beheaded, Mark was dragged to pieces, Jude was crucified, Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and then crucified, Thomas was thrust through with a spear, Luke was hung, Peter was crucified, and John was thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil and removed unscathed and then exiled to Patmos. How many of us really want to identify with that? And here Paul is saying, yeah, I want to share in the fellowship of your sufferings. Do you know, Paul, what you're talking about? Or do we know what we're talking about? When we're identifying with Jesus, 
What are we identifying with? These are those that identified with Jesus. This is identifying with him. And yet, what comes of this? You want to start naming some of the, the people that have been closest to Jesus in history? Well, there's a short list right there. In other words, what do you want? Do you want the closest? Do you want the intimacy? Or would you rather sort of, uh, like, remember those early Christians that are like, I don't know him. Remember we talked about uh, the, the parents of the, the man born blind? And they're like, oh, we don't know how he was healed. We don't know, you know how this all happened. Yet they did know. But they were afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue. They were afraid of the Pharisees. You see, to identify breeds closeness. It's, an, it's a secret of intimacy. Walking a mile in someone's shoes. It's a famous statement, actually, if you want to say it. It comes from Matthew 5 and talking about, you know, if you're asked to carry uh, the pack. Uh, and so... It has biblical roots, but it's, it's a statement. I mean, he, I think Elvis even has a song called Walking a Mile in My Shoes, right? So it's, it's become a secularized concept, but as far as a biblical principle, it is profound. For instance, if you want to be great in marriage, I, we used to travel the world, Leslie and I did, and speak on uh, principles of great relationships and romance, and one of the key principles was what we called tenderness. And the way I would describe tenderness is, okay, so as a man, you're in your shoes and you look at things from a man perspective, which does, isn't a girl's perspective, by the way. For those of you that are guys in here, a guy's perspective is very different. It's weird. And so if you ever climb out of those shoes and get inside the shoes of a woman, it's like weird over here. It's like a whole different climate. It's like, are you serious? You think like that? You look at it this way? And yet to be able to be sensitive, you have to identify with the other person. And to identify with them, you sort of need to understand their world. What did Jesus do? He understood our world. And he brought us into intimacy. It's, a, it's literally a bridegroom bride type of language. He got into our shoes. He didn't just walk a mile. He died our death. I mean, it, talk about an extreme illustration of identification. And yet, it's literally the greatest love story in all of history. So if we're going to talk about intimacy, there's no better place to look than the Jesus model. But he got into our shoes, understood our world, suffered in our place, was tempted in the same way as we are, and as a result, he became our high priest. He became the groom. He became the ultimate man. And so what we see is for us to begin to practice this, of not just looking at life through our own vantage point, but actually beginning to identify with others. You know, when, when you're dealing, when you grow up as a, middle-class uh, American, mm -hmm. and then you look at the poor, and you're like, come on, guys, get your act together. You know, don't just you know, go on welfare. You should work. And yet, if you've never been poor, you don't understand what it's like to be in that condition. It's oftentimes a mental poverty is what it is. It's a lack of vision. They honestly don't see that they can get out of their situation. So sometimes it takes someone from the outside to actually climb into their world and say, let me help you. And yet, if you don't ever get inside those shoes, you don't see what they're stuck in, what they're trapped in. You just sort of throw it out your, your statements from the outside. That's one of the reasons why I'm extremely disturbed and concerned over the modern media situation, especially here in America. I have a hunch with all you Canadians in here, you could weigh in on what it's like in Canada, and I, it's probably worse. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Poor Canadians. I, I have a tendency to throw them under the bus here, but uh, I really like them. I really like them. Uh, but 
is what, I, what I'm seeing is that there is a revilement that is taking place where liberals just demonize conservatives. Conservatives demonize liberals to the point where you can't even listen to them anymore. I mean, they're just idiots. You have, you've already written them off before they open their mouth. Oh, I remember having a conversation. I was sitting across from a lady at Starbucks, not on purpose. She sat down across from me. It was like a little awkward. I'm like, oh, well, hi. <laughs> and I was trying to do my work, and she just sort of would look up, and she'd go, hmm. It, like she was trying to get into a conversation, so finally I looked at her and go, everything all right? And she goes, oh, my computer, my computer. And then she just starts talking from that point. So it's like, okay, all right, she wants to talk. And then she asked me a question, I answered, and she goes, oh, you're one of those. <laughs> I was already labeled, already cast off as an idiot. All I'd said is a few words. That, that's the danger. And the same thing can so easily happen with us where when we don't understand others, when we can't walk in their shoes, you know, like I'm not liberal in my mind, mindsets, but if, you know, who's my audience out there for the gospel? Who am I trying to speak to? Who am I trying to win? It's an audience that hates me, right? So how can I get into their shoes and understand their world to reach them for Jesus Christ? Welcome to the New Testament. That's what it is. I mean, when Paul is going out to reach the poor, he's willing to become like them if necessary. When he's going to reach the Gentiles, he's willing to become like them to reach them. In other words, you're willing to get into shoes and live differently than you've ever lived before so that you can effectively reach someone. It's not with compromise. It's not with sin. It's the version of love, the way Jesus did for us. He didn't sin in coming and identifying with us. He actually did it in perfect righteousness. And that's the same way we are called. He's motivated by love to understand, to enter into a fellowship of suffering so that he could effectively reach. So walking a mile in someone's shoes. Uh, this is from Streams in the Desert. Uh, fascinating little ditty that I, I'm guessing that Mrs. Charles B. Kalman, she's the author of, of Streams in the Desert, one of my favorite all-time devotionals, if not my favorite. It's, it's hard to say that it's better than My Utmost for His Highest or that it's better than Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon, but it may be. It, it's that good. So this is just a little ditty that came out of one. During the Civil War, a man had an only son who enlisted in the armies of the Union. The father was a banker, and although he consented to his son's going, it seemed as if it would break his heart to let him go. He became deeply interested in the soldier boys, and whenever he saw a uniform, his heart went out as he thought of his own dear boy. He spent his time, neglect, spent his time neglected his business, gave his money to caring for the soldiers who came home invalid. His friends remonstrated with him, argued with him, uh, saying that he had no right to neglect his business and spend so much thought upon the soldiers, so he fully decided to give it all up. After he had come to this decision, there stepped into his bank one day a private soldier in a faded, worn uniform who showed in his face the hands and marks of the hospital. The poor fellow was fumbling in his pocket to get something or other when the banker saw him and, perceiving his purpose, said to him, My dear fellow, I cannot do anything for you today. I am extremely busy. You will have to go to your headquarters. The officers there will look after you. Still, the poor convalescent stood not seeming to fully understand what was said to him. Still, he fumbled in his pockets and by and by drew out a scrap of dirty paper on which there were a few lines written with a pencil and laid this soiled sheet before the banker. On it, he found these words. Dear Father, this is one of my comrades who was wounded in the last fight and has been in the hospital. Please receive him as myself, Charlie. 
In a moment, all the resolutions of indifference which this man made flew away. He took the boy to his palatial home, put him in Charlie's room, gave him Charlie's seat at the table, kept him until food and rest and love had brought him back to health, and then sent him back again to imperil his life for the flag. <clears throat> There's something special about that. That idea that when you come in the name of Charlie, when you come in, and Charlie literally appeals, they treat him as if he's me. That the father's response is so grandiose. And of course, that's the gospel. That's the reason we're reading it. That's identification. That's actually what has been made available to us. It's like we literally come into the throne of grace with a little scrap of paper. It's better than that. But it's, it's like the scrap of paper. We unfold it, and the presence of God can say, you must be holy, holy, holy. You must be righteous, righteous, righteous. You must be perfect, perfect, perfect. And we're not. We're just sort of this convalescing soldier who is wounded and aching and, and in need of a father. And we, with trembling hand, hand the note. And it's basically saying, this one believes. And we have found our home in Jesus Christ, and as a result, we are treated as the son. It's an incredible thing, but the idea, biblically, is that's called identification. So to identify, it's a fascinating word, and there's so much in it, because you could get the word identity out of it, which is a whole study in and of itself, and where you find your identity, but to identify is to share in their situation, to carry their plight, to bear their reputation, to intimately understand their needs, to own their destination. I remember God, God was working in me in regards to the poor, and so I was trying to take steps forward, and it's interesting, it's just really fascinating that to hang out with someone like, say uh, you run into someone on the streets that's not doing so hot, and then you take them to a restaurant to give them food, okay? I know many of us have gone through this exercise. But it's interesting to sit at a table with someone that doesn't smell good, that doesn't have good manners, <coughs> and that doesn't look so hot. And you feel people looking. But what you're doing is you're identifying. But <laughs> whether or not you're identifying well <laughs> is, a, is a part of the question. But you don't figure that into the whole equation. You were just doing something noble and feeling good about it. But then when you had to identify with them, you had to identify with their smell. Their smell becomes your smell. It's the smell of your table. Their, their uh, behavior becomes your behavior. It's the behavior of that table. Their funny looks, their poor dress, their poverty is actually being sort of put on you, because it's, it's sort of the look of the whole table. It's an interesting dynamic to walk through. Uh, I remember uh, the, in, the, in the story of Reese Howell's intercessor, where he has this one young man, this uh, outcast guy that lives down at, I think, a factory, and he would go down every day and spend, spend his Christmas with him. And you know, people in the town were concerned about Reese for spending the time with this guy. But then it was, the next test was to walk in the open streets as a friend with him. And that you could feel the stares and the disapproving glances uh, from the crowd in regard to his companionship. And so when you begin to recognize what identify means, to carry their plight, to bear their reputation, to intimately understand their needs, how are you going to understand someone's needs unless you go to the factory where they live in this little boiler room and recognize you, have, you don't even have a blanket? How, how do you sleep at night? Oh, I make do. Well, how do you eat? I just I, I dig through trash cans. Are you serious? You see, unless you're there, unless you enter into their world, you don't understand their needs. 
to own their destination. That's a tricky one, and that's what I'm going to unpack as, as, we, as we move forward, because the entire gospel is hinging around the idea of identification. And what's interesting is, if you identify wrongly, it leads to destruction. If you identify rightly, it leads to everlasting joy. Isn't it funny how uh, much hinges on it? So identi to identify with Adam, so as you've all heard me say many times, you have a first and you have a second. And unless you go from being a first to a second and you repent of your first condition. You see, we're all born in Adam. And being descendants of Adam, we understand genetically, even biblically, I mean, this actually flows out of the biblical understanding, but now in the study of genetics, we understand it at a greater level that we are in our ancestors. That when they were doing their living, we were sort of there hanging out. It's like we are sharing in that descendancy. Their sin passes along to us. Their behaviors transfer to us. It's really interesting. It gets baked into something we know as DNA, which is really odd if you ponder that. But so Adam sins in the Garden of Eden. I mean, that's like close to 6,000 years ago. And yet the Bible makes it clear that his behavior passed along to you. One man sinned and all sinned. That's what it says. What? I, I had nothing to do with that. I don't want to be associated with that. You're identified. You see, you are identifying in Adam. You are in Adam. That's actually the way we all start. And so when you hear me ask the question at Ellers, I go, what's your position? And then everyone says, in Christ. Well, what are we saying? We're no longer identifying in Adam. We're identifying by faith in Jesus. And that is a very signal difference. So listen to this. To identify with Adam means to share in his rebellion. Well, that doesn't sound like a good idea. To carry his disposition to bear his infamy, to intimately understand his impotence. He's powerless to change his current situation and to own his destination. Whew, that's not a good thing, guys, because his destination isn't, isn't a good one. It's a very hot one. And so as a result, to identify with Adam is, is a bad thing. But to identify with Christ, everything flips to share in his victory. So instead of sharing in Adam's rebellion, by faith we put off our old man and we put on Christ and as a result we share in his rebellion, just like Charlie the soldier. He's just like, uh, hands that dirty note uh, to, dirty note, sounds like it has dirty things in it, the crumpled up note to uh, the father and says, you know, treat him as, uh, your, treat him as if he's me, Charlie. And that's precisely what is taking place. Therefore, we're actually able to share in Christ's victory, to carry his glory instead of to carry his disposition, to bear his name instead of to bear, his, to bear Adam's infamy, and to intimately understand his power instead of to intimately understand Adam's impotence, and then to own his destination. Where's he going? He's going somewhere very different than Adam. He's going to the right hand of the Most High God. He's carrying us into the very Holy of Holies. We're able to go where he goes. It's just startling. It's amazing. The bully and the spindly kid. There's something about identification that warms affection. Okay, now this is an illustration I've given at the man talk. So any of you that have gone through Ellerslie have uh, likely, and maybe there's been some semesters I didn't, so who knows, there could be one of you out here going, what, I didn't get that. But it's classic man talk material before the start of a semester. 
And I, I go back in time to uh, when I was in elementary school and there was this one bully that would always, always pick fights. And if you, if you fought on the school grounds, you'd be expelled. And so there was a park across the street, so he'd always be like, in the park after school. <laughs> and so these poor kids, you know, that were always half his size, were just like, I don't want to fight you. He's like, you don't have a choice. And his buddies would carry that poor kid across the road into the park. And so you'd hear this chant as I'd be walking home. My, my command from my parents was to walk straight down the sidewalk, climb over the fence into my backyard, and to not go into the park, which is across the street, right? You don't go across the street. And so I would hear this, fight, 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 fight. And I was so intrigued. And I wanted to know. I mean, it was like half the school was there. I had to know. And so I veered off course in disobedience to my parents, crossed the road into the park, and fight, fight, fight. And I remember coming up to this circle and seeing this big bully and this little spindly kid. The injustice of it was very real to me right in the very beginning. And I knew instinctively that I should do something, but I didn't. I mean, and for reasons that we could all understand, I mean, who am I? I'm, a, I'm the size of the spindly kid. I'm not gonna, what am I supposed to do? I mean, what, what solution do I have up my sleeve? Everyone seems to be wanting a fight. Hey, people, let's not fight. It's like, I, I, I can't do that. And so what I say to the men is this is a man moment. I failed it when I was young, and I saw something that actually scarred me in my development. What I saw with that bully knocking that little kid down, pinning him with his, his knees to his shoulders, and then beating his face so utterly shocked me. And I had never seen anything like that before. And so in growing up, that would be, it would haunt me. And it, it was sort of like, Eric, what should you have done? What should you have done? And it's like, I know what I should have done instinctive to even a man to know what he should do. He should stand up. He should rise up and do something. But I'm going to give a different term to it. He should identify with the spindly kid. He should stand up and take the case of the spindly kid. And so, as I say, if I'm going to train my sons, it's little Ludi shows up in the same situation. I want him to behave different than old Ludi uh, did. And that is to stand up and walk into the middle, even if he has trembling knees, even if he feels like his soul is quaking and everyone is looking like, hey, what are you doing? Walk out into the middle of that and stand before the bully and say, leave him alone. And of course, his name is probably Biff. Leave him alone, Biff. <laughs> and then you know what Biff says because we've all seen it in the movies. He's like, get out of the way or I'll beat you up too, Ludi. <laughs> and then this is the defining moment for little Ludi. No. This is unjust, this is not right. He's half your size. Leave him alone, you have to get through me to get to him. Okay, like famous last words, right? Because little Ludi's, you know, half the size. And so Biff comes along and gives a haymaker to little Ludi, and little Ludi could go flying, you know, 10 feet off to the side, go down with one punch, which is disappointing, I know. But if little Ludi comes home and his jaw is broken, his eyes are black, his nose is contorted, and I'm like, what happened? He goes, Daddy, I did what you asked me to do. I stood up against the bully to protect the little kid. What's Daddy gonna do? Uh, stick my hand on his shoulder and say, well done. And he goes, but I went down with one hit. That's all right, we'll work on that. <laughs> <laughs> 
But you know what's happening in that scene? You know what's happening when that little Ludi identifies with the spindly kid and takes his position? I know some of you are disappointed. It's like, well, did he get beat up anyways? Yeah, he got beat up anyways. It's like, what? What kind of outcome is that? So little Ludi has a broken jaw, distorted nose. You know the the medical bills of this are going to be? And you didn't even stop anything. Oh, don't come to such a hasty conclusion. You see, what is happening when one young boy stands up for what is true and what is right, and he identifies with the weak one, the gospel is being preached to three audiences that day. Biff, who he's now affectionately known as, is laying in bed that night, and what is he hearing? He's hearing the voice of truth, and he's rolling around in his bed going, I'm fine, I can beat up kids if I want, but he knows it's wrong because he heard this is wrong. He heard truth and though he rejected it it's still haunting him and he's feeling wrong he's feeling conviction he may never have felt that in his life and so the gospel is being presented to biff as a hope the law is given as a schoolmaster which leads us to our savior there's another audience that witnessed the gospel and that is the crowd and they witness the the stand of truth on behalf of the weak and they see even a modeling of christ for a bride, even though it's an imperfect shadow, they're still seeing a witness of what is right, what is true. Very few people in this generation are willing to stand up and risk their life for that which is true and to identify with the weak. And there's a third audience, little spindly kid. What's happening in little spindly kid when someone identifies with his circumstances? Who's his best friend all growing up? Little Ludie. You see, there's a warmth of affection that is cultivated when someone is willing to step into your shoes and say, I'm with you. That's the fellowship of the sufferings. In other words, Jesus stepped into our world and says, you're gonna have to get through me to get to them. And Biff, otherwise known as the devil, thought he was tough stuff. It was like, and it was like a steel jaw and the devil's hand melted. In other words, Jesus was far more impressive than little Ludi. But Jesus identified with us, and we look up at him, and we go, my hero. He stands up and he says, I'm with you. Or, are you with me? I'm with him. <laughs> I'm with Jesus. And that's precisely what we're doing. We're identifying with our hero. He's identifying with us. He climbs into our battleground. He takes the bullets that were aimed at us. He takes the blows that were aimed at us. We then, with affection, respond and say, I'm standing with him for life. I'm never leaving your side. You're my hero. By faith, we stand in confidence in our hero and say, he can protect me. He can rescue me from Biff. So as a result, there is a warmth of connectivity that is taking place. Intimacy is sponsored through identification. Gaining that affectionate connection, that's how it's gained. And interestingly enough, that's how it's gained in all of life. When we, for instance, in the church, when we do acts of service for one another, acts of love, the spirit of God incites, it's weird how it bonds us to each other. If you've ever had someone see your need and give to you in a, in a, in a situation, whether it's financially, whether it's practically, they just show up at your house and they start helping you. I don't know if you guys have ever heard the story of Leslie and I being first married and uh, I had, we'd been at a family reunion earlier that year and I'd run into a pole 
the, the light was shining, the sun was at a, oh, it's terribly embarrassing, right? I mean, how, how do you run into a pole in a, in a parking lot? Okay, I was moving like 10 miles an hour into a pole. Poof. So that happened. And uh, I didn't have any money. I mean, I, I was newly married and I didn't have any excess money is a better way of saying it. You guys know what the difference is? It's like, yeah, I had money to pay the bills and then nothing. And so we had a uh, company coming. It was the first guest we'd ever had in our married life. And they were coming from Colorado. And we had to somehow get uh, enough uh, change together to get gas money to drive to Chicago and pick them up and drive back. And we had $8, uh, $8 total. Uh, and uh, when they first got there, uh, Ryan, who is the guy, was ironing. He always wants his clothes ironed. So the first thing he does is, do you have an ironing board and an iron? It's the first thing when he got in. And so we're ironing. And then Leslie was putting away the iron, and she burned her hand on the iron. It was still hot. And so we needed to get some ointment for her hand. So I went with Ryan down the road to Myers, uh, and it cost $8. Everything we had went to that ointment to start out. We had no money for food, and they didn't know it. Okay, So this is a very challenging moment in my life. And we're driving back from the... Uh, the Myers uh, grocery store, and uh, a cop sees my headlight that's out, pulls me over, and basically says, uh, you have one week to get this signed by a police officer that you got it fixed and there'll be no ticket. Otherwise, it'll be it was like $150 ticket. So I have a week to get this fixed, but I don't have any money to get it fixed. I also don't have the 150 to pay the, the ticket, so you can just sort of see what Eric's feeling. The young married guy that just doesn't have a lot, okay? And uh, I wanna take care of my wife, I want my friends who are coming over to be well taken care of, and I, I don't have anything. And Leslie and I that night were just sort of holding each other in bed, and it's just that sense of weakness that was so palpable, and it's like, God, I, I trust you, but I feel so weak, so vulnerable. And the next day we had, uh, a forty dollar, oh, it was a hundred dollar check that came in the mail from Leslie's aunt that says we just had a super abundance and we thought of you and sent this your way. I mean, literally, that shows up in the mail the next day. And uh, then uh, we were at uh, our friend's house down the, the road. Their names were the Staples, the sweetest family you've ever met. And uh, the, the, I'm in the other room, and someone says that you know Eric got pulled over uh, the other day. I didn't like hearing that they knew that. And why? Well, his front headlight's out, and he has to get that fixed within the week. So somehow they found out. So they invited us back over for dinner uh, the next night. And Doug, sort of knowing Eric, that I don't like to ask, I don't ask for things. I don't, you know, as a, you know I wasn't raised that way to say, hey, could you help me? Do you have some money you can give me? I don't do that, right? So, but Doug says to me, hey, Eric, it just so happens to be I have the parts for your car. Do you mind if I go out and fix it for you? Still to this day, you hear me talk about Doug Staples and there's affection because that man got into my shoes as a young married guy. He invites me over for dinner two nights. It might have even been three nights in a row because he knows we don't have a lot. And as a result, that trip, that time when uh, Ryan and Molly came up to visit is still heaven because the body of Christ ministered and identified in a weak situation. So what's the propensity when you have someone meet your needs in those situations, what, what happens? You have a tendency to understand that dynamic and to desire to do the same. It's, it's love begets love, 
Giving begets giving. And so this idea of intimacy is a beautiful one and it stems off of this identification. It's an amazing quality that is the center of the gospel. So if I were to ask you, well, I'll just ask, what is your position? So what does that mean to you? When, when we talk about the classic disciplines of the Christian life, the fifth one, because I've been going through those, the five arts of intimacy, uh, today would typically be prayer. And yet I'm not using prayer as the uh, moniker for this, I'm using identification. But identification is the key to prayer. The reason we have the ability to approach the throne of grace with confidence is because Christ identified with us and we've identified with him. And as a result, we've been brought in to him, to his very life, and we are seated where he is seated. So where are we seated? Well, wait, wait, wait a minute. We're at the right hand of majesty. We are at the right hand of the Father. So he says, so, now that you're in me, ask the Father in my name. And so when we pray, how do we pray? We pray in the name of Jesus. That's an identification term. Um, I'm, I'm Charlie's friend. Uh, and as Charlie's friend, I'm asking you as a father if you would allow me to come into your house and eat your food. And the father guarantees, of course. Yeah, if you're Charlie's friend, if I'm gonna treat you as I would Charlie, of course. And that's precisely what we see. That's prayer. So the essence of that intimate communication is built. It's not just a distant throwing up and lobbying forth of requests. It is a sharing in the name of Jesus. And, you know, as our earlier illustration, in the name of Charlie. We are literally the son or the daughter of a father by proxy, by adoption, by identification. And as a result, that father is going to respond to us the way he would if his own son were asking for it. It's actually what scripture teaches, which is hard for us to chew on and comprehend because we are so spindly. We are so smallish. We are so weak. How could he treat us with such nobility when we've been so rebellious, so wrong, so awful? And yet, even though we are dirty with our little crumpled note, he has brought us in to his palatial estate. And that is the basis of intimate communication, which we know as prayer. Prayer is more than just requests. It is communion. It is sharing in identification with Jesus in relationship to the Father. So when we pray, we are led of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, in the person of Christ, to ask the Father. And we do so knowing with full confidence that he looks upon us with the smile that he has towards his son. He sees his son's righteousness and he, see, and he knows that it's ours. It's shared with us. He sees his son's victory and triumph and it's, it's on us. It's, it's our clothing. And so when he relates to us, he relates to us as towards his son, which is just extraordinary. Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. He, he was in our shoes, guys. He, he walked a mile in our skin, or 
10,000 miles in our skin. He hung on a cross in our skin. I mean, everything he did, he identified, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly. So this is, let us therefore, as a result of this fact, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and grace to find help in time of need. Could you imagine uh, Charlie, the son, he says to this guy, his, his buddy from the war, go boldly to my father, walk into his bank, hand him this. I guarantee you, I know my father. I guarantee you, he'll receive you. Go in my name. You see, we, as a result of the fact that Jesus Christ has identified with us, we are to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's an affectionate bond that is supposed to be a very real thing in your walk with Christ. It's not a distant relationship like, oh, I'm so glad, Jesus, that you've done noble things. You're a good God. He's good to you. He did noble things for you. He stood in the gap and took the hit for you. And once you begin to see that, you become the spindly kid. And you recognize when you stare straight at that big bully who's coming at you, and you know that it's your doom, you know that you can't fight, and then suddenly your hero steps in front and says, back off, Biff. Suddenly you really like that hero. (laughs) That hero is very, very important to you. He's not just a hero, he's your hero. And that's critical in the gospel understanding. Marriage is not a distant thing, it's a very personal thing. And a marriage is based on that same principle of a man being willing to stand for his bride. And where that bride knows she has confidence that if that biff is ever coming at her, that man will stand. And it's the same miniature pattern repeated over and over again of identification. And as a result, there's a beauty that is just always there in that relationship. It's a relationship of identification. To live in an understanding way with a weaker vessel. That's what Jesus did for us. And that's what we do. That your prayers be not hindered. Isn't that interesting? It's even linked to prayer. And so as a result, uh, it's going to be fascinating because the message tonight is called The Husband. And so it'll be fascinating to see all these things weave together. If you're a student this week or if you've listened to this podcast series, you're going to see all these things begin to to weave and to link together. For those of you that are just sort of poking your head in uh, today, well, you can still listen to the previous four. They're very powerful. And tonight, I think, is going to be really beautiful. Uh, It's just a fresh appreciation of the husband, uh, capital H, uh, husband. He's pretty amazing. And yet, it's a pattern. And we are to have that pattern move inside of us so that we live with that same pattern. We are self-sacrificing. We are willing to stand in the shoes and walk in the shoes of the weak and the downtrodden, the imprisoned. We're willing to get dirty uh, to see people made clean. So it's an incredible movement of grace that is there and available to us uh, in Christ. Father, I just ask that you would do a mighty work today. As you set the stage for this alumni conference, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see your face shine upon us and that we would see our hero Lord, it wouldn't just be a hero, it would be our hero. It wouldn't just be a savior, it would be our savior. It wouldn't just be a husband, it would be our husband.
Lord, we love you and we delight in you. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.